The following is brought to you by the Leave It in the Ring Podcast Network. All boxing, no filter. Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire Podcast, presented by The Ring and RingTV.com and distributed by the Leave It in the Ring Network. My guest on this episode is one of the foremost uh, historians in the sport of boxing, Mr. Herbert Goldman. Um, He's a former editor at at Ring Magazine um, and also Boxing Illustrated and and Boxing Digest. He was also the chair of the nominations committee for the International Boxing Hall of Fame and and co-founded the International Boxing Research Organization, the IBRO, which I'm a member of. Um, We we did a, a, a kind of an abbreviated history of the sanctioning bodies which I, I felt was necessary to, to kind of find out how we got here. Um, you know, the, the recent decision by the WBC to, to crown a franchise champion, I just thought was completely ridiculous and just wanted to get some historical perspective on, on how we got here with these sanctioning bodies. So great conversation. Really hope you enjoy. So it's my great pleasure to welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast one of the foremost historians in the sport of boxing and a former uh, managing editor of Ring Magazine, um, also an editor of Boxing Illustrated and Boxing Digest, um, a man who uh, is also chair of the nomination. Are you still you're still chair of the nominations no, committee? I've down. Oh, you stepped down. Former chair of the nominations committee for the International Boxing Hall of Fame and co-founded an organization which I cherish and uh, and uh, am a member of the International Boxing Research Organization. Uh, Mr. Herbert Goldman, welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast. Welcome to be here. Very, I feel very welcome. So uh, really, Augusto was <laughs> meal. Great, great. So um, yeah, let's, uh, let's go into your background a little bit. I, I know that... Uh, um, you, you, you know, you, you worked at Ring Magazine from 1978 through 87, um, and you curated and edited the, the last uh, three editions of the, the Ring Record Book, including probably the most sought-after one, the last one, the 1986-1987 edition. So tell me about your time at Ring. Well, I, I came there. My business up until that time was in the theatrical field. And uh, but walked in there, and I had gotten friendly with Nat LeBay, the son-in-law of the founder, Nat Fleischer. And he told me, I like your mind, you know? <laughs> so there came a time when his daughter Trudy was leaving, and she had been doing the nuts and bolts work on the magazine. So he hired me, and I was given a cram course on how to put out a magazine. And uh, I will say that I finally really mastered the thing, as it was, in the very last magazine, very last issue I did for Nadler Bay. And immediately after I got done with that, the place was sold. (laughs) And I did not do any production work from that time on. The method of doing it was entirely different. But I uh, really was switched over unofficially to doing, you know, the researcher. And I did, I mean, I had a pretty good knowledge of boxing history up to that point. But then I got a chance to read in the ring files and so forth, and I started to do a lot of uh, really original research. And I have to say, I, I was dumbfounded after a while at how many things 
so-called facts about boxing that everybody cherished, absolutely incorrect. Mm. Mm. And I went on from there, and uh, I have to say that after all these years, uh, record-keeping and history in boxing improved out of sight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. The uh, what I really wanted to, to talk to you about today, um, you know, you you put out kind of a, a book series, uh, your, your kind of magnum opus for the sport. Uh, it's a, called a, a it's a four volume set. It's called Boxing: A Worldwide Record of Bouts and Boxers. Um, you know, it's a monumental piece of, uh, of boxing scholarship. Um, you provide records of boxers from the uh, bare knuckle era in the 1700s to the transitional period between. Uh, London Prize Rules and Marcus Queensberry, and then you know, then on from from the Marcus Queensberry complete listing of world champions, title bouts, listings of boxing all time records, regional titles, fringe sanctioning bodies, prominent managers, the organization of the sport, uh, its history and culture. It's just it's, it's a tremendous docu- document. Um, talk to me about the the idea that uh, or just. The germination of the idea to 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 put all that together, and how much time and work uh, went into putting it into one place. Um, I was uh, I had discussed the idea of an all-time boxing reference book with a friend of mine, Don Majeski. Yes. Don Majeski is a very knowledgeable man who's been in the uh, business in the boxing for many years now. as a manager. Uh, promoter, matchmaker, booking agent, and so forth. And uh, anyway, so I started to do it, and without going into a lot of uh, detail about what happened with the publisher, I wound up uh, you know, getting McFarland as a... I wound up getting uh, McFarland as a publisher. They brought it out, and I must say they did a pretty good job on volume four. <laughs> Yeah, I was I uh, was uh I was going to say you know one of my you know my favorite parts uh is uh the the timeline of boxing history in volume 4 and uh I wrote a piece for uh for the Boxing Esquire blog last year about how the time is right for a a boxing league or an association that puts the uh, World Boxing Super Series type tournaments um uh, together and then you know because of the pro- proliferation of the sanctioning bodies and the fracturing of the sport it really hurts the credibility and mass appeal of the sport and the world boxing super series is a ray of hope that boxing can be like all the other major sports where uh, the best compete against the best and uh, you know you have a champion you know a, a final champion crowd like you have in other sports and you know and, and have that done on a regular basis um, why I really wanted to talk to you and, and, and why the timeline uh, kind of uh, came to mind was uh, the, the recent decision by the WBC to, to designate uh, Canelo Alvarez as a franchise champion who does not have to face any mandatories. And it, it just struck me as completely antithetical uh, to why these uh, ruling bodies are there in the first place. I mean, you, you, you know, initially... It seemed like they came around to crown who the real champs were and have them face the top contenders. And, uh, you know, the fact that the WBC was also touting a unification between their interim and world champions also seems beyond absurd. So I, I grabbed your uh, volume four to look at the timeline to, to see just how we got here and what attempts were 
previously made in the sport to kind of have one true true governing body. So um, I guess you know, just in the in the interest of brevity, because we you know you, you have it going all the way back to the 1600s. <laughs> so um, well, I guess you know we could talk about it. So I guess. The 1700s, just, just talk about Jack Broughton, and who, who, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, who, who was known as the father of boxing, and, and what kind of rules he kind of instituted initially for the sport. It's a funny thing. Now, boxing, or a form of it, uh, pugilism, was practiced by the ancient Greeks. You know, the Romans picked it up, and so forth. And then it was outlawed in, I believe, 394. Mm. And uh, at that point, the uh, Olympics were, were abolished, and uh, that was the, the, the sport disappeared for like 1,400 years by oh, wow. large. Okay. Yes, yes. Sometimes you'd have uh, two guys box in front of uh, you know the audience of a duke in his castle or a king, but that was was really it. And sometimes you might see them in country fairs. Hmm. Uh, things began to be a little bit more open and so forth with uh, the Restoration, the Glorious Revolution, the whole bit. After the Glorious Revolution, uh, more and more entertainments became public. Boxing, of course, uh, well, the, the stage. Mm. The stage was outlawed when uh, the, Puritan, uh, the Puritans came in. Oh, wow. okay. and, but after the Glorious Revolution, the stage was restored. And uh, it, uh, you did have, yes, a, a, a real revival of interest in the sport. Uh, and there was no one really who went around designated, designating his, himself or his people as the arbiters of boxing. Right. The fancy did that. Who was the fancy? Uh, they were the aristocrats who were the fanciers of boxing at that time. And uh, the only money in those days, sometimes a wealthy uh, individual would put up purse money, and then there was, of course, all these side bets that took place. And uh, really, there wasn't, uh, you know, this idea of all these, uh, this regulation of the sport, to a large extent, starts in the Queensbury era. We had uh, glove boxing with uh, three-minute rounds and so forth. Right. And... uh, it, uh, now, there was no money in, the, in this end of it at that time. You had in 1920, uh, the formation, 1920-21, of the National Boxing Association, right. which the New York State Commission claimed it was prohibited from joining. It was a bunch of nonsense. New York had a lot of power at that time. The garden and all that. They wanted to be independent of the NBA so they could uh, make rulings and so forth favorable to New York promoters. Ah, okay. And that's one of the troubles with this because uh, there is a, what might be termed a certain selfishness in boxing. Everybody is constantly jockeying for uh, that uh, additional dollars, shall we say. And uh, it's very, it's been, it's rather a difficult thing to try to lasso these people, you know. But I happen to believe that uh, if the sport is to survive in the United States, 
and regain its position possibly as a major sport instead of a niche sport, which is what it is at this country at this time. Right. Something is going to be have to is going to have to be done. Right. And whether it's uh, what kind of organization, I don't know for certain. Uh, but uh, the goal of the world sanctioning bodies, there is no doubt. You know, let's be honest about it. They are out to make money. <laughs> That's always no sin to make money. Right. But at one time, that was not the purpose. Right. The World Boxing Association, when it was the uh, National Boxing Association, did cross sanctioning fees. Right. A dollar for a title fight. <laughs> and then it became at 150 bucks. And uh, thanks to a, you know, a, a particular situation at one point, the powers that be used the way things went with TV, and now uh, being the head of a sanctioning body, you're head of a multi-million dollar money-making operation. Right. And uh, that's where it's at right now. And, uh, well, I would love personally to see one champion in each division from now on. But you have the WBA, WBC, IBF, uh, WBO, plus, the, plus a plethora of minor world sanctioning bodies. Right. Now, overseas, they're not bothered by this too much. Why? They have no history of, a gen of any generic world champions. Right. So when I was a boy, the goal of the fighter might have been, I'm going to win the world title. Now it's, I'm going to win a world title. <laughs> and uh, that's where it's, it's gone. Yeah, I actually, I mean, uh, and again, I can't, I can't say enough about the the great timeline that you put together um, because it's uh, it, it's a real education as to how we got to where we are now and kind of missteps along the way that that might have uh, prevented us from getting there. So, as you said, 1921, the National Boxing Association is founded in New York City, but the New York State Athletic Commission attends the meeting but decides not to join. Right. Um, now I, I've seen now at that point in time, there weren't boxing commissions in all 50 States. And I, I've seen like different numbers for how many States, uh, attended that, uh, uh, convention in, in, in 1921. What, what, what did you come up with for, for, for the number? And if you could recall which States. I, uh, as I remember it, uh, about 20 or so States at that time, uh, and it's always been a case where boxing is active or is flourishing in certain states and not in other states. Right. And uh, in those days, the, uh, the U.S. carried the ball. And the New York Commission was very powerful, as was the NBA to a certain extent, too. So they would, uh, there was one uh, fight where uh, Marcel Thiel, who was recognized in Europe as world champion and really historically was the world uh, champion. He came over here to fight the uh, NBA champion, Freddie Steele. And uh, they couldn't make the fight. And so the, uh, the promoter had uh, Marcel Thiel face Fred Apostoli. And Fred Apostoli won the fight. And uh, took the New York Commission, though, some time to crown him as champion. It, uh, in some respects, you have it better. There's more uniform regulation today than there ever has been. But, uh, but to, the, to the public, the world champions of today, the public in the U.S., they are unknown. Right. 
boxing has become a niche sport. It's at the same time followed and practiced in more countries over the world and in more parts of the world than ever before. So the U.S. really has been, has taken a, a giant backward step. And to a large extent, this is no longer a, well, certainly no major, no longer a major U.S. sport. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, again, just, just going along this timeline. So even before there was the NBA, um, there was an organization in Europe, right? The, uh, um, what was it? The IBU, the, IBU, the International Boxing Union. Um, and it seems like in, in 1926, five years after the NBA um, was formed, the National Boxing Association here, the, the precursor to the World Boxing Association, WBA, um, there was a meeting in Paris uh, where the IBU, the European uh, organization, and the NBA, which was admitted as an affiliate to that organization, um, met up, and and I, I guess... Uh, um, I would assume at this meeting that there there was some sort of talk about uh, having uh, just kind of one body or at least uh, uniform rules. Or do you recall what, what what was discussed at the at the meeting in 1926? This was a meeting to uh, well a lot of uh, differences. In those days, NBA was very powerful. IBU was uh, pretty powerful as well. Now the IBU was forced out of existence in 1940 when the Nazis came into Paris and so forth and so on. And, uh, but the, uh, this meeting you attend, you've referred to, New York State uh, sent a representative, and then just as they had done with the NBA, they announced that their rules prohibited them from joining the uh, whatever organization, yes, the World Championships Committee right. is what was formed at that time. Right. So they did it once again without New York and uh, what can I say, uh, the motto of the New York State Commission in those days was very much, I'm all right, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now, now it's interesting. Now you said that um, there was kind of this idea of the generic world champion back then, let's say in the 1920s. Um, Ring Magazine came into existence in the early 1920s, I think 21 or 22 as well, right? Um, and I know that they, they recognize the world champion and so on. So what role did, did Ring play, um, I guess, from, say, maybe the 20s all the way through to, you know, when, when the WBA and WBC sprouted up in the, the early 60s? Well, the Ring was very much of New York and the New York State Commission and Madison Square Garden. They uh, didn't always go along with them, but usually they did. And uh, as time went on, yes, uh, Ring uh, was the, uh, they were the, the leaders of the sport in this country. We have a tough time imagining that today because the idea of a magazine running any field is, is foreign to us. But they went along and uh, you had the NBA accepting certain foreign bodies as affiliates of it. And, uh, but really, they, uh, the American promoters, more or less, uh, they ran the NBA. And uh, the BBC, or, you know, the, in the 30s, the IBU, they were treated as poor stepchildren mm. by mm. the NBA. 
And uh, this continued for quite a while. I mean, uh, you had in the 1950s uh, permeation of the sport on a level that was unprecedented before. And it was pretty much there before anyway by, uh, you know, the, uh, let's say, out of the uh, beyond the law uh, <laughs> fraction. All right. And uh, things went along. Boxing was, uh, a lot of people considered the 1950s to be the height of the sport. For the fan watching home, watching television at home, you know, fight of the week or Wednesday night fights on CBS, whatever it was, he could now sit back in his chair, you know, and sip his favorite drink and just watch the main event 9 to 10 p.m. And then his wife would come back in the living room, you know, and they could resume watching television <laughs> together. Meanwhile, across the country, small clubs were folding up like mad. And if you had gone to a promoter in those days, you know, a small-time promoter, and said, this is really the, uh, the, the greatest period in boxing there's ever been, it would have looked at you like you were out of your mind. <laughs> and uh, and the, from a, a height in 1953, well, there were six weekly telecasts of boxing in this country, you know, on the, the various networks, one on NBC, one on CBS, uh, three on ABC hmm. and one on DeMont. Uh, but for the consumer, for the guy sitting at home, fine. But as a, after a while, there was a decrease in the number of telecasts among the major networks. Right. Yeah. And uh, finally in 1964, it was down to one. Hmm. And they went off the air as well. And in the midst of all this, you had uh, Benny Kid Perrette beaten to death on national television in 1962. It was, uh, and finally, uh, boxing was about to having been used to put over network television. Boxing was out of network television. Mm -hmm. The only fights televised from 65 uh, on to uh, about 77 with the exception of the of ABC, when they came on Wide World of Sports, the only boxing was tele that was televised was uh, syndicated. Syndicated shows that, uh, you know, okay, but uh, you no longer had boxing as a staple of the regular television diet. Right. That was over. And then you had uh, a resurgence of boxing in a way, in 76. What happened in 76? Uh, the movie Rocky came out. Uh, you had the great U.S. Olympic team uh, of that year, and uh, you had also the start of casino boxing, whereby the fights were basically guaranteed profits for the promoter, both of, of, via television and via these casinos. You know, the promoter would make a, a, date, a deal with, with the network, uh, whether it was pay-per-view, pay whatever it was, and uh, the casino printed the tickets and put, uh, put uh, the fight on after, after buying the site rights from the promoter. So on fight night, all the promoter had to do was sit back and count the money. Right. <laughs> and uh, anyway, in 76, this prompted Ring Magazine to get involved in what was called the U.S. Championship Tournament. And uh, as the tournament went on, uh, allegations of uh, a number of things 
came out, and uh, finally ABC, which was doing the televising, threw the uh, U.S. Championship tournament off the air. And, uh, you know, as I used to say, another black eye for boxing. <laughs> but uh, this had the effect, though, of strengthening the world sanctioning bodies. Because right. the networks no longer could point at Ring Magazine and said, well, they say it's a world championship fight. Or right. they say it belongs in this U.S. championship tournament. Now they needed some other source of credibility. So they turned to the WBA and the WBC. And uh, the WBC uh, at that time also stripped Leon Spinks of the world title. Because if, if signed for a return bout with Muhammad Ali, and, uh, instead of fighting the WBC mandatory right. uh, Ken Norton. So the WBC uh, declared Ken Norton new champion. He lost to Larry Holmes. And then Larry Holmes made a good number of title defenses on ABC. This had the effect of putting the WBC especially over. And it's been uh, a matter of uh, television and sanctioning bodies ever since. Right, right. Well, let's go back. Like like I said, uh, you know, your, your timeline is amazing and I, I didn't want to skip anything. So uh, let's go back to, uh, to 1938. Now, this is pre-World War II. Um, and World War II would obviously play a very big role in uh, kind of knocking out one of these uh, these governing organizations, um, obviously the IBU, <laughs> but because uh, they were based in France. But there was a World Championship Committee meeting. Um, it was comprised of the NBA from U.S., the IBU, and the British Boxing uh, Board of Control, and the Italian Federation. Um, you know, they met and, and again, the, the New York state athletic commission was there, but didn't vote claiming they, they were not authorized to commit the commission. And, you know, as you said, it was, you know, they, they didn't want to give up control, but, um, I, I can only imagine like if, if this world championship committee had kind of survived through, uh, world war two, if we'd maybe be in a different place than, than we are now, what, what would you think about that? Uh, it might have happened, you know. Uh, now, when the IBU folded in 1940, we really didn't have much professional boxing in Europe. Uh, some in Germany, of course, and all that, but it was sort of a, uh, a, a blacked-out period, you know. But, uh, and then after the war, uh, the EBU was formed, the European Boxing Union, to replace the old IBU, the EBU, with one or two exceptions, was not interested in sanctioning uh, world title fights or recognizing world champions. They really were there to recognize European champions. And uh, there was always you know, uh, activity in boxing. Uh, you might say the history of boxing, I'm quoting someone now, is really one damn thing after another. <laughs> And, uh, but as I've said, uh, TV came in and they really called the shots for a lot of people for a good number of years. And then of course you had the revival in 76, 77, and it wound up really giving a lot of power to the majors, to the sanctioning bodies. And then 83, you had a third sanctioning body, the International Boxing Federation. 
1988, you had the beginning of the World Boxing Organization. Right. And these uh, people, I have to hand it to them. I have to hand it to uh, the late Jose Suleiman and, and so forth, uh, Gilberto Mendoza. I mean, they took this and they created a money, a very lucrative money-making field that had not existed before. Because at one time the NBA consisted of the various state commissions in the U.S., except the uh, New York State Commission. Right. And uh, they, uh, you know, they got along fine. And then, though, there came a time they had more and more affiliates from other countries, which, and uh, that would give them maybe a vote apiece. For example, I mean, Mexico, which had fights galore, got one vote, all right? Vermont got the same number of votes. And they might have had no shows in Vermont over the previous calendar years. And finally, the uh, foreign affiliate members said, hey, wait a minute, this is absurd. And the NBA said, well, you're affiliates. I mean, we have different states here. And then Mexico and Argentina showed up with a, a plethora of representatives from each of their provincial state commissions. And they were able to get control of the, certainly the WBA for the first time, and so forth and so on. I mean, Mexico cemented its uh, uh, control of the WBC. And this was the beginning of more and more boxing becoming a non-U.S. sport. The U.S. still dominated until, I would say, uh, the early 21st century. And since that time, the sport has been going very well, I believe, in different parts of the world. But it is no longer a mainstream sport in the United States. Right. So, again, taking it back in the timeline, another thing that interested me, and, and again, uh, you know, as I think about it today, you know, how, how could we bring the sport together and kind of, I mean, the sanctioning bodies have kind of split it and fractured it. Um, one of the ideas that a fellow writer had was maybe that the, you know, that the fighters should form some sort of association. Um, I know that, uh, there's, that's been attempted a couple of times. Nothing's really happened, but in the forties, there was a manager's guild that, that came together. Now, when I think of managers back then, I mean, when you look at the regulations that States, uh, put on the books, mostly starting in the twenties, um, they regulate managers, but not promoters. So I'm assuming then that managers were more, you know, nowadays because of exclusive promotional contracts, fighters can't fight unless the promoter says they can fight. Back then, I would assume the managers had that power because there weren't long-term uh, uh, promotional contracts. So talk to me about uh, the Boxing Managers Guild of New York, which was uh, incorporated uh, in uh, November of 1944. Well, going back and further back and further back, all right? Well, you didn't have the sanctioning bodies, all right? You had promoters, and some of them were quite powerful. But managers really ran the sport. It was a seller's market in those days because of all the uh, promoters. No television, really. And, And even radio did not pay that much. So these guys, I'm talking about the big-time managers who managed world champions, 
top contenders, they had a lot of power in those days. They could deal with this promoter here, this one over here, and say, we'll go with this one over here. And uh, this was uh, the, the case. I mean, if you were a young fighter, I mean, to, to you, the greatest thing that could happen was to get under the management of a top manager who really held a lot of cards. Because somebody who controlled one or more world champions, and let's say maybe a dozen contenders, he had a lot of power. He can say, oh, you want so-and-so to fight your local kid? All right, we'll do it for such and such amount of money. I want three of my other kids on your show. Because, A, there were only eight world champions back then, right? There were only eight weight divisions, and there was generally just one world, you know, like you said, the generic world champion. That's right. But uh, the contenders were known to the public. Right. In fact, there was a much uh, more, uh, well, discriminating uh, public in those days. They knew the fights and the fighters. Right. I mean, today... I don't know how many network executives which put on boxing know the fighters. <laughs> but the public in those days surely did. Now, the Managers Guild, yes, established 1944. This really had a lot to do with uh, Jim Norris, the International Boxing Club, which succeeded the 20th Century Sporting Club of Mike Jacobs. Right. Jacobs was... Uh, the promoter at the Garden for a good many years. It had, but but in '44 though, this was pre Jim Norris though, right? This was pretty much pre Jim Norris, yes. And uh, then of course Mike Jacobs had a stroke, and uh, the managers quickly uh, towed the line with a friend of Jim Norris named Frankie Carbo. And this all ended at the end of the '50s, '61, and all that. I mean the. The Managers Guild was ordered dissolved right. by the courts right. because this really was getting, uh, seemed to a lot of people rightly as a rather, was getting a reputation as a corrupt sport. Right. Right. And uh, so that was out. And uh, I would say basically that uh, mob control of boxing to a large extent went out of, uh, went out the window in 1965 because uh, Muhammad Ali had his own people. Right. So after he beat Floyd Patterson in the first fight in the garden, uh, they, uh, you know, it was a different era. And basically, so-called organized crime, uh, to a large extent, went out of boxing at that time. And, uh, and then you had... Uh, as I've said, the 1950s, where television really uh, ruled the roost. Imagine having a televised fight involving a contender every night of the week except Sunday at mm. one time. Mm. And uh, this was extraordinary. But the downside was it forced a lot of small-time promoters out of business. And... Uh, but boxing uh, survived. Right. It did. But uh, now, of course, uh, because of the fact that we became a very, very prosperous nation. We'd been prosperous before. But in the 50s, the U.S. prospered. I mean, probably it was the, uh, the, the uh, greatest era for the average American there had ever been. And... Uh, 
as a result, I mean, kids back in the 1930s and so forth, that were, let's say they lived in Manhattan, or they lived in uh, Philadelphia, Boston, Cleveland, okay? A lot of these kids would go out and make their debuts on professional fight, fight cards. I mean, like at 14, 15 years of age. Mm. This stopped after World War II. Right. There was a movement to the suburbs, and after a while, middle-class suburban uh, family, well, you, you, your son wants to be a fighter? You know, take him for therapy. <laughs> this is it's crazy. So as a result, fewer and fewer uh, kids became fighters. And uh, more and more, this was a gradual process. Uh, the contenders in certain weight divisions, the latter ones, you know, they more and more became a non-U.S. sport. And finally, uh, the NBA became the WBA. And this was for two things. First of all, it was becoming more of a global sport. And gradually, other parts of the world became more powerful in the sport. And besides, by that time, the NBA had its initials uh, stolen from it by the National Basketball Association. <laughs> I shouldn't right. say stolen because the NBA had no uh, copyright on that. Mm. But uh, yeah, increasingly, if you said the NBA, people thought of the National Basketball Association. Right. But uh, the sport continued to move, and uh, but increasingly, the top contenders the champions were coming from overseas, were coming from uh, countries besides the U.S. And more and more, uh, since it was going off TV, or had gone off TV to a large extent, onto cable, no longer on network television, people uh, began to lose interest. They were used to it being a U.S. sport, and now it no longer was. It was a world sport and the U.S. played an increasingly minor role. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't, I didn't want to leave the, uh, the, the, the guild just yet, though, because I, I think, uh, again, you know, uh, a, a writer friend of mine who wants the fighters to form an association, I don't know if uh, just educating folks who may not know this, and again, this is on your timeline, which is excellent. Um, the, uh, in 1950, now, basically Norris and, like, when Lewis retired, this was, like, maybe, I think 1949, and this is when Jim Norris, who uh, came from a very wealthy family, um, who uh, um, owned, I think, yeah, I think you and I spoke about this yesterday, uh, he owned uh, one of the Chicago stadiums, maybe one in Detroit as well. And uh, once Jacobs uh, kind of got sick and was kind of and Lewis had decided to retire and get into promotion, um, along with Norris, um, Norris then acquired an interest in uh, Madison Square Garden. So he had at and at that time, you know, the, the the big stadiums were where the big fights happened. So having control of those stadiums was was a, a very big deal. Um, so this is 1949. Now, 19. 19- I think in 49 or actually 1950 um, the managers guild went on strike, which is something, you know, is unfathomable today in the sport of boxing. Um, And there was no boxing at the garden for a couple of months. So um, Norris and, uh, and, and his associates had to um, negotiate with these guys. And these guys actually did get a raise for the fighters 
Um, but as you said, you know, while all this is going on, the guild has also kind of been infiltrated by Frankie Carbo, and he's kind of the guy behind it. But, um, yeah, talk about, you know, just maybe a few of the uh, things that the Guild actually did for fighters. Well, yes, uh, some fighters got more money, but this had more to do with TV right. than really anything else. Right. And uh, It was the TV money they were TV money, yeah. you know, and uh, also a lot of the stuff, you know, was above uh, board, you know, let's say. Meanwhile, there was a below the board, too. And you can't deny the influence that Frankie Carbo had on the sport and the business of that sport at that time. Right. And, uh, all right, that was... Uh, you had, by the way, the purses of fighters raise, uh, at, uh, risen at certain times. There was an organization that came into boxing in the early 1980s. It was called uh, the... Uh, uh, forgive me uh, for the moment, but yes, Muhammad Ali Professional Sports. M A P S. Maps. And they started paying fighters, you know, better than they could possibly get elsewhere, right. whether they were on TV or not. Right. And it developed this uh, uh, money was coming from a very reputable source, the Wells Fargo Bank, <laughs> where it was being siphoned out by a particular individual and all that. And, uh, you know, and a lot of people, of course, said, well, yeah, that's understandable. That's boxing for you. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I guess I should, you know, the, the, the Manager's Guild, yeah, I think uh, they, they gave Norris enough problems that... Uh, um, you know, they, I think he was behind a, a rival organization sprouting up um, with, I think, Dan Parker, the, the, the writer for The Ring, and uh, I forget which publication here in New York, uh, was, was all over this. And he was just saying, well, you know, some of the newer managers uh, latched onto this, you know, the cantankerous old managers who might have been looking out for the fighters, um, you know, kind of got snowed under. And now this new organization, I think what was it called? It was called the uh, International... Boxing Union, maybe? Yeah, or no, the International Boxing Guild formed in Chicago. And uh, suddenly their fighters uh, uh, were the ones who were getting the title shots and not the old uh, um, New York uh, Boxing Managers Guild. And eventually both guilds got put out of business because uh, the, I think the commission basically was like, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, you guys are squeezing, you know, small-time managers and people have to cut in the the guild to uh to get their fighters on New York cards and and I think you know the commission was kind of behind uh getting rid of them. Um, yes, I would say uh that both organizations were suspects, were suspect in certain ways. Right. You know, I mean, uh you didn't tell Frankie Carbo, Mr. Carbo that uh, you weren't going to do things his way and all that, you know. Uh, no, you did things Carbo's way. Uh, that was it. Right. I mean, I knew a man, a, a esteemed trainer, you know, Ray Arcel, right? and he wanted to do things his own way, and he had his uh, head virtually split open. Right. He survived, right. but uh, this is what could happen to you if you crossed the wrong people. So you had, 
uh, had the mob involved virtually uh, in every way. For example, uh, Floyd Patterson, all right, his manager, Customato, didn't want him facing any of these top contenders because they all were in with the IBU. The International Boxing Union, mob control he claimed, and so forth and so on. This, to a large extent, was a bunch of nonsense. Yes, they were IBU fighters, okay? They were uh, plug, fighters, right? yeah. plugged Managing in with, with Frankie Carbo. Right, right. Yeah. Now, uh, the custom model was not plugged in with Frankie Carbo. He was uh, plugged in with Fat Tony Salerno. In other words, uh, different uh, folks, different gangsters. Right, right. You know, so uh, this all uh, was well known to the people in boxing at that time. And uh, it, uh, you know, it was accepted as part of boxing. And, uh, and that was it. But it took, uh, it took some time for this to change. And... Uh, I would say the, the sport today in the U.S., as elsewhere, is probably the cleanest itself as such it's ever been. But it has problems, especially in the United States. People don't know the fighters. There are too many uh, uh, so-called world champions, and so many of them are from other countries. And the, U don't, the U.S. fight fan was spoiled for a long time. Because in many cases, like three of the uh, of every four top contenders were U.S. Right. And uh, so now all of a sudden you have uh, all these uh, foreign fighters, and uh, the U.S. fan uh, doesn't keep up with them the way he should, in all fairness. So this has been a large part also. Uh, people are confused. Too many sanctioning bodies. Too many champions. Uh, and increasingly, you want to see boxing on TV. It's not on what we called, in my youth, network television. It is on uh, different cable outs outfits. Uh, in other words, it does not get a shot at creating a new generation of watchers. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um... Yeah, just uh, another point on your timeline that I found really interesting, kind of fast-forwarding to 1962. Um, you know, the, there did come a point here, yeah, where, where you said there was big objection with as it became more of a world sport, the NBA's voting rules where, you know, each commission in the U.S. got one vote and then each country's commission outside of the U.S. only got one vote. So it was obviously kind of rigged so the U.S. was, was controlling. Um, in 62, they renamed themselves the World Boxing Association, the WBA, at their annual meeting. And uh, the organization we talked about before, the World Championship Committee, then became a part of that new body. So it seemed like you might have, you know, one organization, uh, you know, uh, a consolidated world organization, which is something that's kind of been a goal of the sport. Um, and they did, uh, let's see, um, I, I don't, yeah, they, they, but they didn't really change their voting rules, right? They didn't really change their voting rules enough at, at that point in time to satisfy the foreign contingent. Uh, not enough, but as I said, the foreign contingents came in 
with all kinds of uh, provincial chairmen and so forth, and demanded that each state uh, in, in Mexico, Argentina, and so forth have a one vote of its own. Right. So they got the WBA away from the U.S. to that extent. And yes. So this was in the 1980s, though? Uh, this was in, based, no, uh, well before that. Okay. You know, the 1970s and all that. But uh, they, uh, yeah, it was a sea change. And they, uh, and finally, the, yes, the World Championship Committee, that became the nucleus to a certain extent, to a large extent, for the formation of the WBC which, when it first began, was a committee of the WBA. Hmm. And then it broke away gradually, and then it said, finally, they would have nothing that were completely independent of the WBA. Right. And so the genesis of the modern situation began at that point. Different world-sanctioning bodies with their own uh, champions, and uh, but after a while it became not a question of we should recognize uh, the uh, man who really has the most legitimate claim to the championship. No, it became more and more, we want our own champion in every division. Right. Now it's gotten kind of, kind of to the point, for some years now, the WBA has its own champion, and that champion fights, let's say, the WBC champion, or the IBF champion, and uh, and uh, wins uh, that, you know, becomes more or less of a unified champion, the WBA then would sort of uh, would say, yes, he's the super champion. We have another WBA championship. We're going to start beneath him. Right, right. I mean, if this sounds absolutely crazy and comprised of unbelievable amount of, uh, amounts of gall, uh, well, welcome to boxing. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, you know, uh, again, on the timeline, 1963 officially was when the WBC was established in, in Mexico City. Now, um, kind of getting further into that, I, I've read in other places that uh, the WBC it was also one of the, one of the people who kind of pushed for this and, and got it going was a California promoter named George Parnassus. Who, uh, who promoted a lot of Mexican fighters and was very frustrated with the NBA, WBA, and that he wasn't able to move them because there was so, it was so U.S. heavy. So uh, talk about kind of uh, the inner workings and formation of the uh, WBC. George Parnassus was a very, very intelligent man. And uh, he saw what the situation was becoming. And yes, to a large extent, he was in there. I think uh, as an advisor, as a source of, of, of power and all that. And uh, he really ha had a lot to do with the formation of the WBC. And then the WBC, of course, became an independent organization completely. Right. And uh, everybody in the fight game is jockeying for power. Now, it's gotten to the point, it went to the point, where HBO, which is now out of boxing completely, uh, said, uh, we're not interested in these sanctioning bodies' titles, all right? We're going to uh, just build uh, whatever we uh, judge to be a world title fight as a world title fight. We will not make reference to the WBC or the WBA or the IBF or whatever. 
And so that began another movement. Meanwhile, though, in countries all over the world, the WBC was looked upon and the WBA as a source uh, of uh, legitimate, uh, legitimate boxing. In other words, they're telling a WBC title, we're putting that on uh, television in our country as a WBC title fight. And more and more, of course, uh, more and more countries came in, and the U.S. started to go down in, in terms of really controlling the sport. Yeah, it seemed, you know, for the most part, yeah, I think when uh, the WBA and the WBC, again, going back to your timeline, uh, they ended all affiliation. The WBC voted to end all affiliation with the WBC in 1966. So, like you said, there was still kind of a tenuous um, connection between the two um, until 66 when they just became separate entities. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's interesting, like, you know, the NBA or then the WBA uh, – at times would withdraw um, uh, recognition of, of, of a championship. And, and 64 was, I think, the first time they ever um, withdrew recognition from a heavyweight champion. Um, and that was Muhammad Ali uh, when he signed the, the, the rematch with Sonny Liston. Um, they, they, the WBA stripped him of the title. Um, and I, I guess the, 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 the genesis of that rule was because Patterson and Johansson had fought three straight times, and then Patterson and Liston fought twice, and they just were, were tired of the rematches. But for the most part, um, as you were saying before, there was generally always, you know, to that point, like a generic world champion. There was, for the most part, I mean, occasionally there'd be two world champions, but they always seemed to unify, and the titles were really not split. Um, you know, even Ali fought Terrell in a, in a year or two to, to unify. Yes. Uh, the WBA and uh, then, you know, a year or two later, the WBC, uh, began to strip certain champions of their uh, championship status, as far as they were concerned. Uh, the WBA crowned the winner of a fight between Ernie Terrell and Eddie Mason as its new world heavyweight champion. They were laughed at. Ring Magazine, of course, became their absolute uh, enemy. And, uh, but Terrell made a few defenses, and then Ali fought Terrell and reunified the title. And uh, so uh, the WBA really uh, it didn't strip everybody so fast. The WBC started to uh, put up its own versions of the junior lightweight and junior welterweight titles. And uh, it was a very, gra well, a gradual process. And uh, derided by the American press, by Ring Magazine, but increasingly the, the, the sanctioning bodies came under the control of uh, non-U.S. authorities. Uh, Ring Magazine didn't seem to mean that much, and the U.S. began to mean less and less. So this was a process that led finally to, uh, yes, the establishment of four uh, major world-sanctioning bodies and a plethora of minor world-sanctioning bodies. And... Uh, as things went along, and uh, more and more of the uh, of fighters fought in their own uh, homelands on uh, national TV, uh, 
And I found they could, in many cases, make more money defending their titles in Europe and all that. This led to a gradual erosion of the U.S. control of the sport. And uh, after Lennox Lewis, Lennox Lewis knocked out Mike Tyson, uh, you had more and more of, uh, of, of big-time world championship boxing and so forth. And it went overseas more and more. And so finally, I mean, it had been off network TV for some time. Really, it, uh, you had that 76 revival. That was more or less over by the end of 83. And it continued to go down and down. You had some, I mean, terrific fighters in American fighters in certain weight divisions of certain periods. Marvin Hagler, for example. But uh, you also had more and more, uh, yes, uh, the sport becoming non-US, going overseas, until finally uh, you had very few American-born champions. The uh, sport was off network TV in this country, and the U.S. fan base started to erode. Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of, you know, gradual process. You and I kind of spoke about it last night where, you know, in the, you know, in the 1980s, you still had boxing in, you know, the early 80s. You still had boxing in prime time. I remember seeing Larry Holmes uh, defend the title a few times on ABC. And then, you know, HBO stepped in and started outbidding the networks. And, you know, you, you took boxing off of, you know, being televised for in front of hundreds of millions of people to now, you know, just, you know, tens of millions of people um, on, on HBO. And even, you know, Mike Tyson, who started out on network TV, kind of ended up on, on HBO and Showtime. And a lot of people thought that that really, that really shrunk the sport. Um, but I guess, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's bring it back to, uh, you know, let's, let's kind of fast forward it to today. Um, as you say, there there are kind of four recognized um, uh, sanctioning bodies. There are many more, but the, you know people kind of accept uh, that there there's four major uh, organizations that crown champions, um, and it and it's fractured. And you even have these org- a few of these organizations you have more than one world champion. Um, I don't know. Have have you had a chance to see the World Boxing Super Series and uh, and what they're trying to do? Where they're, they're actually having trying to get like the best fighters in each in the weight classes that the, that they sponsor and have tournaments to determine who the actual world champion is again. So we have kind of a you know one champion in per division again. I have to applaud Al Heyman. A promoter who has uh, had the courage to go forward, purchase airtime, I believe, and put fights on television for the public. Uh, this is to be commended. There's no doubt about it. Now, these uh, even had at least one show on CBS. And uh, this is a step in the right direction. There's no uh, question about that. I would say, really, Boxing has been a niche sport, in other words, not a major uh, sport in this country for at least, uh, I would say, the last 15 years. And 15 years in the history of a sport is a long time. And uh, so an audience would have to be recaptured or a new audience created 
to really put boxing up on the board again as a major sport in this country. There's no uh, doubt about that. And uh, whatever can be done by uh, any individual, by any organization, to grab a hold of the sport, legally, morally, and so forth, and uh, create uh, more unification title fights, uh, put more uh, boxing on television, certainly this is a step in the right direction. Now, the fact that you've had very, very, very few fights on network television in the U.S., that is, uh, you can't deny that this has been a major blow to the sport in this country. Uh, let me bring in another sport by contrast, uh, the National Football League. Now, it has been suggested at various times that the NFL put the Super Bowl on network, tele- on, pardon me, on pay-per-view, right? and that this would make them a tremendous amount of money. But the owners of the NFL teams, who by and large are very wealthy uh, individuals, have caucused among themselves and decided no. Why? They can make a lot of money, but they feel that the, uh, the Super, Bowl, uh, Super Bowl makes a lot of fans every year. And that long term, you would ha- erode the NFL fan base if you had the Super Bowl on uh, pay-per-view, and that's why they haven't gone in that direction. In the U.S., we don't, uh, the the kinds of individuals who are team owners in the Major League Baseball, in uh, NBA, NFL, uh, boxing is a different breed. You know, a promoter, you know, has to have imagination, courage, a number of things, but uh, he has to really be, he is ultimately out to make money for himself. Again, not the worst thing in the world by far, but uh, to get promoters to sit down and cooperate, very, very, very tough. Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it just seems like, I mean, now you've got, it, it's interesting in the sport right now, you have um, top rank, Bob Arum, has a deal with ESPN that's, you know, allegedly around, you know, close to $100 million uh, a year. You have the PBC, Al Heyman, that has deals with two networks, um, Fox and Showtime, and those deals combined are are over $100 million a year. And then you have uh, DAZN, which is is an app uh, right now. It's not a network... uh, it's not on, on television unless you uh, have like a fire stick uh, to, to pull down the app. But they're pouring more money into the sport than, than, than you know, any of those networks. Um, you know, it's estimated they're probably almost putting in like $200 million, maybe even more than that uh, in, the, in the last year or so. So, I mean, I think even adjusted for inflation, that's more money than the sport has ever seen. And, but the problem is also you've got one faction on this network one faction on this network, another faction on this network, and it's very, it's even more difficult than ever for the major fighters and the best fighters to fight the best if they're in different camps. Um, you know, my idea is to, you know, these guys, you know, have to kind of wisen up and, and like the NFL owners did 
in in the 1920s well you know as they were poaching each other's players and it was kind of a barnstorming thing it wasn't that organized they just said this is madness you know if we if we form a league and you know and the whole is greater than the sum of its parts you know the, the, this is going to be very successful and and you look now you know 100 years later and it's the biggest sport you know maybe well not on the planet but certainly in the United States um so yeah my hope is that the 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 major promoters the major players um see that you know there's all this money but it it can go away you know tv deals go away all the time hbo's gone and and you know if you're not pulling ratings and you're not pulling subscribers because you're putting on weak fights that people don't want to watch you could very easily lose this it seems like if they collaborate they could they could get it back to one champion and and you know at least kind of try and get boxing back in the mainstream. Uh, what would be your thoughts on that? It's very funny. I mean, HBO, when it was really coming up, you know, and trying everything and all that, uh, they really went for boxing in a big way. Right. And you uh, had an audience that wanted fights. There are many people who, uh, you know, just took HBO as part of their cable package. They paid extra simply to watch the fights. HBO has decided now to get out of that, uh, out of the field. They say they're open to, you know, for deals for separate fights, but they're no longer going to have their own department, pursue fights, and so forth and so on. Uh, yeah, there would, I believe, uh, if handled right, be more money uh, ultimately in the sport, and the sport could get a much larger fan base if there was some organization. Uh, in the U.S., and that would, uh, yes, deal with promoters uh, and, of course, deal with the different uh, television networks, but do this in a way that is good for the sport because, uh, you, yeah, the U.S. public is demanding in, in certain ways. They will, even in New York City, you come in here, you don't have something the public doesn't want, you're, you're gone. But if you have something the public wants, New York is still the best city to put it on. Right. And uh, yeah, if you, let's say, have uh, a unified world heavyweight champion, right, he would be able to get much more exposure, right. whether on network t- uh, TV or elsewhere. I mean, it used to, when I was, gee, I don't know how old, uh, I remember listening to you know evening news on television, and they gave a news summary at the start, which ended with and uh, Dick Tiger lost his world's middleweight boxing championship to Joey Giardello. The networks, the network news, does not have news even to that extent of world championship boxing. Why? There's a plethora of all of them, and the networks can't decide. To, you know, can't effectively separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, solution, very simple. We're not going to give any of them any mention. And that's the way it's been ever since. So the, the, the American public, by and large, is not exposed to boxing. Now, if you are already a boxing fan, you'll, you, know, you will seek out the boxing you want. But if you're not, in other words, it is the sport in the U.S. is not making enough new fans. It needs some kind of, I believe, 
supervising authority with the power to go out and really have these championships reunified and have uh, one champion, I mean, if possible, in every class, and have him become a major league athlete uh, whose name is known to the public. Absolutely. Absolutely. Amen. So on that note, I really appreciate your time, Herb. Uh, and I highly, highly recommend uh, folks uh, pick up, um, you, you know, pretty much, you know, any publication that, that, that you've done, because, you know, if there are any theater fans uh, listening out there, you also have uh, uh, three great books on, on uh, theater legends, uh, Al Jolson and Fanny Bryce and uh, Eddie Cantor as well. Mr. Jolson was a fantastic fight fan. <laughs> the manager, right? Well, he was in on the contract of Henry Armstrong for a while. He claimed that Eddie Meade didn't send him a cent of Armstrong's earnings and all that, so he just, you know, he let it go. But uh, he was always a big fight fan. Uh, he went to the Johnson-Jeffries fight in 1910, and uh, Variety made him its official correspondent at that fight. Oh, wow. And his report on the fight was published in Variety, the fight at Reno. So in those days, by the way, people in show business, even the Broadway stage, Many of them were major fight fans. So uh, that's an alliance. It's an old one between boxing and, and show business, which, frankly, I would love to see started up again. Absolutely, absolutely. Again, uh, the, the, the magnum opus, that uh, the four-volume uh, set that, that, that Herb came out with was the Boxing, a Worldwide Record of Bouts and Boxers. And uh, Herb, really, uh, thank you for your time. Glad to do it, and I wish you all the best. Take care. And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast, presented by The Ring and RingTV.com, and distributed by the Leave It In The Ring Network. I'd like to thank Herbert Goldman for taking the time out to speak with me, and definitely check out his uh, magnum opus, as I call it, a four-volume set called Boxing, a worldwide record of bouts and boxers. Just so much stuff in there for, for any... Uh, boxing scholar or boxing fan uh, to find and uh, just uh, appreciate. Also check out his, if you're into the theater, his his great uh, biographies of Al Jolson and Fanny Bryce and uh, Eddie Cantor. Um, I know that Herbert's also trying to get his American Theater Network, a network devoted to uh, the theater, off the ground as well. So uh, contact him to, uh, to help him out with that. Um, if you like the podcast, please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Audioboom, SoundCloud, or wherever you access the Boxing Esquire podcast. I'd really appreciate it as it helps new listeners find the podcast. And also, do not forget to check out my companion piece to this podcast on ringtv.com that features quotes and background on my interview with Herbert. And until next time, so long, everybody. Looking for?